Holy Spirit, we invite you to minister to us through your word and the proclamation of your word. Teach us, Lord God, what it is that you would have us to know uh, this morning. Uh, Use my preparation, Lord, uh, but more importantly, use your word uh, to, to get into our hearts, to get into our minds, Father, that we would not only hear it, and then, God, that you would give us understanding, but then, Father, you would give us application as well, and that we might be doers of this word and not just hearers of it. So go before us now in these next few moments, Father, as we spend together. We pray that you would be gracious to us, and we pray that again in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, when we left off in the series through the Gospel of John, we had started chapter 12, and so we're back into that series now. For those of you who are newer to LifePoint, we spent all of 2022 in the Gospel of John. We'll spend a good portion of 2023 in the Gospel of John as well. As we've walked through it, we took a bit of a hiatus there for an Advent series and then through the holidays. Uh, we're ready now to re-engage in, in John's Gospel And so we'll be picking up in John chapter 12, verses 37 through 43 this morning. But when we left off, Jesus had entered into the city of Jerusalem for a great Passover week, a festival, a feast that would culminate in the great Passover meal, but would begin almost a week prior to that as Jesus and many other pilgrims came into Jerusalem to prepare for this great festival. Jesus has come in. We call it sometimes the triumphal entry. Now, John's gospel doesn't really portray the triumph of it. He does, but not to the same extent that some of the other gospel writers will do. But certainly we see the people uh, receive Jesus Christ. Uh, They are exuberant in their celebration. Jesus has come in, and he's going to spend this final week, what we call his Passion Week, in the city of Jerusalem are in its environs. He will leave the city a few times, but come back to the city uh, in the morning and spend most of his time there in the city of Jerusalem. And so this final section of John's gospel, in fact, really almost the whole second half from chapter 12 all the way through the end of this gospel, will be dealing with this final week of Jesus's life, Jesus's passion. John has been working his way up to this in what we call the book of signs, right? Introducing us to Jesus, introducing us to seven great signs, seven great statements, I am statements of Jesus, telling us who Jesus is, proclaiming the gospel to us through his written gospel, and now he'll spend the last half or so of this gospel simply telling us about this last week in Jesus' life. As Jesus has come into the city, if you'll recall, if you were here a month and a half ago or so, the Jewish Pharisees, these are the leaders of the people of Israel, the religious leaders of the people of Israel, they have been very clear in their opposition to Jesus and his ministry. They make it very clear that they reject this man And they reject his role, and they reject his ministry, and they reject his claim to being the Messiah of the people of Israel and the Savior of the world. And yet, in that crowd, if you remember, are some Greeks, some Gentiles, and they have come to meet Jesus. They have come to to have a, 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 a discussion with Jesus. And so what we see here is John opening up and showing us what the whole Old Testament has been pointing us to, and that is Christ came for his people, and yet he would be a blessing to all the nations, as the people of Israel were intended to be a blessing to the nations. And so as the Jewish leaders representing the Jewish people rejected their Messiah, by and large, and the majority of the crowd there, there are some Gentiles who have come. And the gospel is going now to the nations. They have come to meet 
with Jesus. Jesus then reminds his disciples that the hour for his glorification has now come. It has arrived. And from now on, those who seek to save their lives in this world will lose their lives. But for those who will find their lives in Christ, they will gain their lives. This will be the new pattern of the kingdom. Seek your life and lose your life. Seek Christ, our life in Christ, and you will gain that life back. And so here, in Jesus' Passion Week, what will appear outwardly as judgment upon Jesus will in fact be his judgment upon the world and upon the ruler of this world, Satan. What will appear outwardly as a great victory for evil will in fact be the glorification of the Son of God. So what the world sees is different than what is actually happening in this story. Jesus is bringing judgment on the world and upon the ruler of this world. God is glorifying his son through this great act of passion that Jesus is obedient to in this final week of his life. Jesus admonished his disciples and this crowd that have gathered around him as well as he's entered into the city of Jerusalem. And you may remember that during that time, Jesus said outwardly, uh, publicly, uh, what shall I do? Shall I flee from this hour? Shall I, shall I try to save myself from this hour? No, he says, I will not save myself from this hour. I will give myself, as it were, to this hour. And then he simply says out loud, Father, glorify your Son. And if you remember, there is a voice from heaven that says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, some in the crowd thought it was thunder. Some in the crowd at least gave credit to something happening within the heavenly realms and saying an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus now admonishes his disciples and this crowd that are there, and I suspect these Greeks who have come to have this discussion with him, that they are to now walk in the light as long as the light is available to them. That as the light is now there in their midst, they are to walk in that light. But friends, not only to walk in this light, but they are to place their hope and their trust in this light. They are to believe in the light of Christ. They are called to these two things. Walk in this light. Believe in this light. Put your hope and your trust in this light. Because if you'll do that, Jesus says, you will become sons of the light. Both men and women alike, you will become sons of the light. You'll no longer be sons of the darkness, but you will now be sons of the light. And so, friends, before we even get into our teaching lesson today, a quick admonition to you an admonishment to you and to me as well. We are to believe in the light of Christ. We are to believe in Christ. We are to walk in that light, and we are to live our lives like sons of the light, not like sons of the darkness. There should be a distinction for those of us who claim to know Jesus Christ. We walk in his light, not in the darkness of this world. Today, we're going to see why many refuse to place their hope and to believe in Jesus Christ, in spite of all that Christ has done. And this text, I think, will call us to believe in Jesus, and not only to believe in him, friends, but to stand into that belief, to hold fast to that belief, even against great odds, even against great struggle, even against great pain in this world. We are to hold fast to our belief in Jesus Christ. So that's what I hope we will glean from our text today. We're in John chapter 12, 
starting at verse 37. We're going to read through verse 43. If you're here and you're new to your Bibles, John's gospel, one of four gospels. It's the fourth of four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're in the gospel of John, chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to pick up at verse 37. If you'd like to find that in your Bibles, we've also got it on the screen here behind me this morning. Let's stand together, shall we? Let's honor God as we read from his word today. We're going to actually pick up right in the middle of verse 36 and then jump into 37. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, as Isaiah said, said, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Amen. You can be seated. I've been listening to a lot of different uh, podcasts and videos here recently of some British scholars, and so I'm having a tendency to say Isaiah instead of Isaiah. <laughs> Carl Walton, who did our scriptural call to worship today, is born in Great Britain, and he loves that fact that at times I slip into that British Isaiah, but it's actually pronounced Isaiah. It should be everywhere in the world, actually, <laughs> pronounced Isaiah. Here we have, friends, a demonstration of just stubborn unbelief. It is just stubborn unbelief. Verse 36, Jesus addresses the disciples and the crowd and those Greeks, and then he goes and hides himself. And we might say, well, well, why does Jesus do that, right? Great opportunity, great crowds. He should be proclaiming the gospel to these people. He should be using this as a preaching opportunity. But remember, Jesus has used many opportunities to proclaim the gospel in his ministry thus far. John has just taken us through the book of signs, right? John chapter 2 through through chapter 11. And in those we see seven great signs of Jesus. Jesus proclaiming who he is both, both through demonstrations of power and through his own words. Seven great I am statements, right? I am the light of the world, right? I am the good shepherd. These great I am statements that tell us who he is. By Jesus' own mouth, he's been proclaiming who he is. By his own actions and by the power of God, he has been demonstrating who he is. Now, Jesus says, has come the time for judgment. Now judgment, he says, comes upon this world. This great Passion Week, friends, is a time of judgment upon the world and upon the ruler of this world. And that judgment begins now in the text, now in the life of Jesus. He has proclaimed the gospel now, except for some some unique opportunities, and primarily to his own disciples, Jesus will not be addressing the crowds anymore. Judgment has begun now, friends. And how does this judicial judgment begin It begins with Jesus just separating himself from the crowd and hiding himself. He will not be there now for them. He will not be proclaiming the gospel as he was proclaiming the gospel before. Now, he says, is the time of judgment. So as a sign of that judgment, Jesus removes himself from the crowds and go and hides himself. Now again, he doesn't hide for the whole week. He will engage again. But again, that engagement will look different than it has 
in the bulk of his ministry prior to this Passion Week of his. So Jesus, John tells us, had performed many signs before the people, and yet many still did not believe. Many continued to reject Jesus Christ. And so, friends, I'll say this again. Miracles do not make Christians. Miracles do not make believers. They may reinforce. Certainly that is what Jesus was doing in his ministry. And at times he would even say to the people, if you don't believe in my words, believe in the signs, right? Look to the signs. Look to the things that point to me as Messiah. But miracles do not make for Christians. We don't see miraculous things and instantaneously decide we're going to follow Christ, at least not for the bulk of all of humanity. These people had seen Jesus himself in the flesh perform many signs, proclaim many wonderful things about himself and about the world around them, and yet they still found it quite easy, it appears, to reject Jesus Christ for who he is, for who he was in their lives. Why? Why is it that miracles do not make for believers? Well, primarily, friends, because there's always another explanation. Right? There's always another explanation. And for so many of us, we're always waiting for one more thing from God. Just one more thing to clinch the deal, God. One more thing that will demonstrate that you are God, and then I'll put my faith in you. One more good thing for me. One more pleasant experience for me. One more proof of your existence, God. And then I'm yours, and I'm yours forever. But friends, we're human beings, and there is always one more wound to discover, right? Always one more thing. Always one more thing we wish God would do on our behalf. It's like an old song that I remember from my college days. It went like this. He's everything you want. He's everything you need. He's everything inside of you that you wish you could be. He does all the right things at exactly the right time, but he means nothing to you, and you don't know why. But John does know why. John does know why he means very little to so many, and he tells us why. Friends, this is, I believe, John's final attempt within his own gospel as he brings to a close the book of signs and moves into Jesus' Passion Week, this is his final opportunity to elicit faith in the reading or listening audience. He is calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the purpose statement of this entire gospel. He's calling us to believe. He's not shutting the book on everybody and saying, see, I've already told you everything, now you can all go to hell. That's not John's purpose. His purpose here is one last time to say, can you believe? Will you open your eyes? Will you open your ears? Will you open your heart to Christ? One more opportunity to elicit faith in us and in his listening audience. But we, so many, are stubborn in our unbelief. Unbelievers, along with their God, who is the God of this age, work together, friends, in damning themselves in unbelief. Both our enemy and those who align themselves with our enemy. They work together in conjunction, the Scriptures say, to damn themselves in unbelief. And as difficult it is for us to understand, John tells us, as he quotes the Scriptures and as the whole Scriptures tell us, God is hardening their hearts along the way. It is his own judicial judgment, friends, on sin. 
It is God's judicial judgment on sin. And here's what so many of us will do at this point. We'll say, see, God is a tyrant, right? See, what God is doing, he's hardening hearts. He's making it so people can't believe. He must be a tyrant. You talk about a God of love, but that's not a God of love. We have flipped this entire narrative, friends. We flipped it. God's judgment and the judgment of Christ is on sin. Yes, people are included in that because they've included themselves in God's judgment on sin. The verdict is that sin is what Christ came to defeat and to destroy. Sin is what God has come to condemn in Christ. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't condemn people. I came to condemn sin. And so many people will align themselves with sin. Friends, align yourself with an assassin and give relief to the assassin and give them a place to hold up and to stay and give them funds and and, and engage with them. Although you may never pull the trigger, you have aligned yourself with them. And when the authorities come to take that man down, they may take you down with them. There will not only be a judicial responsibility for your alignment with this, but when there is trouble and the bullets begin to fly, you may be in the midst of that as well. Align yourself with sin and know that there is collateral damage that goes with it. Now is the time of judgment, Jesus says. He has come to judge sin in this world. Find yourself harboring in sin and find yourself under the judgment of God the scriptures would teach us. In fact, friends, sin becomes the punishment for sin. More sin becomes the punishment for sin. Look what Paul says here in the book of Romans to the Romans in Romans 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, let it be written, he says. Amen. Let this be written. Sin becomes the punishment for sin. If you look prior to that text and after that text, and you'll have to do that on your own, which I would highly encourage you to do if you've not read Romans 1, you'll see God's judicial judgment on sin. This is what people are doing, giving themselves over, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, continuing to do that over and over again. What does God eventually do? He gives them over to that. And what happens when he gives them over to that? They keep doing it. That's what they do. And they do it more and more and more. Sin becomes the punishment for sin. God gives us over to the sin. And then our lives spiral downward. And that text then goes on to say, and here's the the outward manifestation of God giving them over. They've given themselves over to so many things that Paul names directly. This is what happens when God gives us over to that. Sin becomes a punishment for sin. And then we engage more in sin. And then we have more sin. And then we engage more in sin. And then we have more sin. It is God's judicial judgment upon sin. And so many unbelievers think, look what I'm doing with my life. Look how wonderful things are, right? There's no lightning bolts from heaven. I'm doing what I want to do. As the spiral goes downward and downward and downward, and the hardening becomes harder and harder and harder, and the repentance becomes more distant and more distant and more distant. Now is a time of judgment, Jesus says. And this is a teaching that runs throughout the pages of the Bible, my friends. 
verses 37 through 41, John tells us that the prophet Isaiah, who lived 750 years before the ministry of Jesus Christ, saw two things, he said very clearly. He saw two things clearly. He saw the glory that would be revealed in the coming Messiah, and he saw Israel's stubborn disbelief and rejection of the Messiah. Two things that this prophet saw from 750 years out. The great glory of the Messiah and the rejection primarily or almost totally of the people of Israel towards their Messiah, their stubborn unbelief to him. And therefore, John quotes two passages from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's great call is he's in the throne room of God and God calls him to be a prophet And he says to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I, Isaiah, and the first person said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And this land becomes a desolate waste. And so many look at that and say, see what God does. He says, look, keep perceiving, but you won't understand. Right? You're not going to see it. You're not going to believe it. And so we, we put the onus on God and say, see what God is doing as he hardens people's hearts? As we flip the narrative, friends, what God is saying is if you would open those ears of yours, If you would open those eyes of yours, you might hear and perceive, and then I would heal you. Then I would heal you. But the people will not. And so the hardening begins, and the downward spiral begins for the people of Israel. And from afar, the prophet sees the stubborn unbelief as it manifests itself, even in the time of the glory of the coming of the Messiah. Lord Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who is listening to me, God? Who is hearing me when I prophesy these things? And the answer is, hardly anybody. Almost nobody's listening to you, Isaiah. Almost everybody is turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to you and to your ministry. This should remind us of what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7. See to it that you enter by the narrow gate, right? For broad is the gate. Easy is the path that leads to destruction, and many walk on that. But enter now through the small gate, because the gate is small, and the path is hard that leads to everlasting life, and there are few who find that path, friends. Jesus is simply saying what has been said through the prophets. John is simply saying and reminding his hearers that this judgment of God is now coming upon this world in and through the ministry and the passion of Jesus Christ. Friends, again, I say this runs throughout the narrative of the Bible. Let me read to you just two more passages, two more passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Moses, a prophet of God, in Deuteronomy 29, summons the people of Israel as they are concluding their 40 years in the wilderness and preparing to enter into the promised land. He summons the Israelites and he says to them, your eyes have seen all that the Lord did 
in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw these great trials, these signs, these great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. Yet the Lord says, during the 40 years I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord. What is he saying here? He's saying what Jesus said or what John is saying about Jesus. The people are looking at these wonders and living in stubborn unbelief. The people of Israel are watching the wonders of God in the heavens and on the earth and stubbornly not placing their hope in God. And God says, I'm not going to give you eyes to see. I'm not going to give you hearts that will understand this stuff. But if you will perceive these things, if you would understand these things, then I would reveal to you that I am your God. And for some in the wilderness, they understood that reality. They understood that God is God. Then Jesus in Mark chapter Four, when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables that Jesus was sharing with the people. He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be healed. We flip the narrative, friends. See what God has done? See how mean he is? He won't let them hear or perceive. That's not the narrative. The narrative is you're blind in your stubborn unbelief. If you would turn, I would heal you, but you won't. And therefore, judgment is coming upon this world. Judgment is coming upon the God of this age. And you will be wrapped up in that judgment in a stubborn unbelief, the scriptures tell us, friends. And so there are people in the crowd who have seen these things and yet have rejected Christ. But they're not the only element in this crowd. They're not the only element there. Verse 42 tells us about another element in the crowd that day. Men and women who did believe in Jesus, just like there were some who did believe that God was God in the wilderness. There are some who hear the words of Jesus, they believe the words of Jesus, they respond to the words of Jesus, and yet they are too afraid to stand up and be counted. It's a cowardly faith. It's a faith, but it's a cowardly faith, friends. And many today refuse to stand up for biblical truth. Many who claim to know Christ, many who attend church, maybe even this church, every single Sunday. They refuse to stand up and be counted. They refuse to stand for biblical truth. They refuse to develop a biblical worldview. For many, they don't even know what a biblical worldview is. How do I think about life? We, we, we flesh it out, friends, through what the Scriptures teach us through the revelation of God. It's a biblical worldview. So many reject it. They don't have time for that. Jesus is great. They like Jesus. They place their faith in Jesus. But when the trouble comes, they're not standing up for Jesus because it would cost them far too much to stand up for Jesus. And this is so many in the body of Christ today, friends. They refuse to stand for truth. I gave a few examples last week of what that looks like. 
as I challenged us to move into 2023 in a different way, prayerfully considering how it is that we're going to follow Christ. I'll give you a few other examples today. So many in the church of Jesus Christ refuse to stand for life, friends. They refuse to stand for life from conception to the grave. Friends, there is a movement in our culture called Christians for Choice. It's a mockery. It is a mockery. And this is how so many stand in our world today who claim to know Christ. Why? Because our world is whittling away at the truth, friends. Not just this truth, but every other truth that is out there. They've changed the language a hundred times. They call good evil and evil good which God through the prophet Isaiah have already told us, woe to those who do that. Woe to those who would call good evil and evil good, who exchange truth for a lie. But that's exactly what's happening in our culture today and in so many other cultures. We're going to claim to have God on our side and then we're going to make unbiblical demands. And we're going to demand that you rejoice in this and call us great people who stand for great convictions who will not back down on their convictions and dare to call themselves followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The killing of the unborn is called health care in our culture. The putting down of the elderly is called compassion in our culture. We put human beings down like we put dogs down. And you say, not in Indiana. Soon, friends, soon. Soon, euthanasia will be a part of this agenda, even in the Republican state. This world has embraced the idea. Our nation is now embracing it and seeing how compassionate it is. We're making beautiful movies about how compassionate people are when they put their 12-year-old son down because he's got problems with depression. It's a sin. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie, friends. And so many Christians refuse to stand for this. Why? Because they've labeled that viewpoint wonderfully. It's called progress. It's progressive. All of us who, who would stand fast for the truth, we're archaic. Our, our, our heads are in the sand. We're not on the right side of history. Get on board and you'll be treated like the adult that you are. As they continue to ravish the truth, and so we continue to give and give and give and give. We give way to a worldly sexual ethic and give way away the clear biblical ethic, friends. Sexual relations in a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And we fudge and we fudge and we fudge and we fudge on that. Right? We can't be on the wrong side here. Too archaic. And so we give way to what the Scriptures teach us about a pure and biblical sexual ethic. And we say, I still love Jesus. I just want to be on the right team. I just want to be on the right team because being on the right team will keep me from having all these struggles that come from being on the wrong team. Why do we do this, friends? It's because we fear man, that's why. We fear human beings, that's why. We want the glory from humankind more than we want the glory of God. And so we exchange that truth for that lie while we claim to hold on to Jesus Christ. 
The Jews of Jesus' day did not fear pressure from outside the community nearly as much as we do today. They feared pressure from inside the Jewish community. They feared being removed from the synagogue, being removed from fellowship, and it was a real threat. The Pharisees did this. They took away people's ability to engage in community life and worship. It was a real fear. Look what Jesus warns his own disciples about as this last week is coming to an end for him in John 16. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, meaning what? Some of you are going to die. That's what it means. Whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Friends, is that not our culture today? We're doing this for God. We're being compassionate. We're seeing the real Jesus of the Bible. You've missed it. This is who God is. God wants these things. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, that you may remember that I told them to you. I do not say these things to you from the I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, he said. Now he's going away, and now he's telling them, you better buck up. You better know that this is coming. Some of you are going to die. Some of you are going to be cast out of the synagogue. I'm telling you ahead of time so that you will be prepared for that time. So be prepared, Jesus says to them. Friends, our love for God must eclipse our love for humankind. Our belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and God must outpace our desire for peace and for safety. And I'm confident that's true for most of us in this room today. I'm confident that that's true for most of us in this room today. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says to the Christian community in that day. For you have need of endurance, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's the challenge, friends. That's the challenge. That we endure and preserve our souls and preserve the faith of Jesus Christ once delivered to the saints. That is God's call to us. That is what Christ has come. He has come to save those who have reached out to him and who will live and believe in the light and to condemn the world and all those who have aligned themselves with the world. He does that in one great act of kindness and judgment on the cross, friends. Listen, our day is coming. It's on the horizon, friends. It's on the horizon. As Jesus said, now is the day of shadows. Things are not getting better. Things are not getting better. Now is the time of shadows. And we must decide now before it happens, will we endure? Will we believe? Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you this now. I want you to know. I want you to look back and say, he told us, didn't he? He told us. He told us to get ready, to be prepared. This is what the scriptures are calling us to, friends. Get ready. Be prepared. Don't wait till the time comes and not be prepared because then you're not prepared. Prepare yourselves now. We need to prepare ourselves now as a congregation. We need to prepare ourselves as individuals. How do we increase our faith now, friends? How do we increase our faith in Jesus Christ? 
we do what the disciples did. What did they do? They asked. They asked, Rabbi, increase our faith. Jesus said, here's the times that are coming. They heard it. They realized we don't have enough to muster that. So they said to him, increase our faith. And Jesus did not rebuke them for that. That's how we do it, friends. I wish there was some pattern I could lay out on the screen for you, eight-step pattern. Here's how you'll become a more faithful human being. All I can tell you is you pray to God and you ask him to increase your faith. Engage, friends. Engage in your faith and ask God to increase your faith and he will do as, you're at, as you ask. Prepare yourself now. The pressure to capitulate and the fears will increase and then we'll be ready. And then we will be ready as a congregation and as individuals as well. We pray, we prepare, we engage in our faith, friends. Not tomorrow, today. Today we do these things. Today we prepare ourselves for what is to come. Judgment is coming upon this world, friends. Do not find yourself in stubborn unbelief. And do not be one of those believers who say, I believe, but I will not stand up and be counted for Jesus Christ, friends. Ask yourself today, do I believe? Now ask yourself again, do I believe enough? Do I believe enough? Will I endure till the very end, friends? God is there. He will help you to do that very thing. Amen? Amen. Hey, bear with me for just one more second as I just say this. Many in the world will say, why is the church always talking about sex? The reality is, is we're not, right? We don't spend every Sunday up here talking about sex and who you need to have it with. That's where the world is attacking, friends, and we must defend at the point of attack. This is what the world is talking about time and time and time and time again. And so we have to say what is true. We have to defend a biblical ethic. Listen, if you're here today and you have breath in your lungs, it is not too late for you. Amen. It is not too late for you, friends. Amen. Maybe you've engaged in that worldly sexual ethic, maybe multiple times, many times. Maybe you've been involved in one way or another in the wickedness of the abortion industry. Friends, remember Peter, close friend and associate of Jesus. On the last night of Jesus' death, when Jesus needed him the most, Peter denied he even knew him three times. Once, I do not know that man. Another time, I do not know that man, I tell you. A third time, with curses, I do not know that man. And it was Jesus himself, by his own invitation, who invited Peter back into the family of believers. It's not too late you are not an outcast. Christ came to save sinners. I'm one of them. And so are you. Amen. If there's breath in your lungs, you can turn to Christ. And you will not be wrapped up in all the judgment that will come upon this world, friends. Turn to Christ. Flee to Jesus. Know Christ. And forget about your past. Move into a glorious future with Jesus. Amen? Amen. So, Father, I pray for us today, and I pray, God, that you would help us to leave this place, those of us who know you, firm in the faith, Father, ready to prepare ourselves for that great day so that we will not be caught sleeping, Lord God, but we will be fully awake and fully engaged. Father, for those who are here who do not know you, I pray for their salvation today. 
God, take away blinders, soften hearts, draw people to you through your son, I pray. We love you, Lord. We give you thanks and praise. And we do it all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.